At this time, I'm going to ask Christian and Drayson to come up again and introduce our next speaker. Yeah, I have the honor of uh, introducing Dr. James White. He's the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries. I like him for a lot of things, but one of them is obviously he loves the Word of God. And I love his bow ties. They are very colorful, and he's an excellent speaker. He has been in Germany. He has been in Russia and many, many other countries. And uh, if you ever want to ask him to come to speak for, to you, be ready to have him yeah, do some exercise. He loves to ride the bike, uh, even in your living room, if that has to be. I want to correct Christian. I have never ridden in his living room. It's his garage that I, I ride in. And uh, it has been my honor to uh, uh, teach there in Berlin, uh, in uh, Kiev. I'll be heading to Zurich in September. And uh, I can assure you that I have always uh, been very, very well treated uh, as I have sought to uh, teach every time that I've had the opportunity uh, to teach for TMAI, uh, wherever it is, and I, I hope to have more opportunities. I have a lot to cover in a very brief amount of time. What do Muslims need to know in regards to the subject of inerrancy in the global context? And you may ask why in the world I'm speaking to you about this. Um, very briefly, I've had the opportunity of engaging in debate with Muslims around the world now. And uh, recently, especially in South Africa, uh, we have had the opportunity of engaging in debate inside uh, the masjid, inside mosques. Uh, one week after the attack on the Benghazi consulate, I was debating a Muslim in the East London Mosque in, in London, uh, one of the largest mosques in the world. And so uh, I bring an apologetic uh, aspect to this discussion. What I want to try to do in the brief amount of time that I have is to explain to you uh, why Muslims believe what they believe and what we need to do uh, to communicate not only to the Muslim world, but especially to the indigenous populations, the pastors in Muslim countries or in countries that have significant Muslim populations. We need to understand what Muslims believe, why they believe what they believe about the Bible, and how to speak to them in such a way that they can understand uh, why we believe that the Bible has been transmitted to us in an uh, accurate fashion, the differences in what we believe concerning the subject of inspiration um, and how inerrancy fits with all of this. And so that's a, that's a tall order in a brief amount of time. Uh, may I ask just very, very quickly, how many of you in this room have read the entirety of the Quran? Look around. Okay, you're going to have almost the exact same percentage of Muslims who have read the Bible. And you wonder why our two communities don't communicate very well or why we have a lot of misunderstandings about each other's uh, scriptures. I think it's important to keep that in mind. What do they need? Well, uh, let's look at what uh, the Quran says in Surah 29 and 46. O Muslims, do not argue with the people of the book. We are the people of the book. We are the al kitab the people, it's sometimes Jews, sometimes Christians. Uh, sometimes it's hard to tell which one's being addressed, but do not argue with the people of the book except in the best of ways, or it might be translated in beautiful ways. Say with such of them who are unjust and say, we believe in that which has been sent down to us and that which has been sent down to you. 
our God and your God is one, and to him we surrender. Now, if you've read the Quran, you know that it gives us glimpses of various parts of Muhammad's life. And that when you get to the later portions of the Quran, there's much more of a of a strong anti-Christian bent to things. The one religious group that anything positive is said about in the Quran are Christians, but that's sort of in an earlier portion. And so what we encounter in the Quran is really a mixed message concerning Christianity, but it's not so much a mixed message concerning our scriptures. And in fact, I think you can make a very strong argument that the author of the Quran did not believe that our scriptures were corrupted the way that modern Muslims do. I'll explain that a little bit more as we, as we go through a couple of these texts. Say, notice these words, say, O Muhammad, we believe in a law and that which was sent down to us and that which was sent down to Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and the tribes, and that which was given to Moses and Jesus and the prophets from their Lord, we make no distinction between any of them, and to him we have surrendered. That's in Surah 384. And so you have a very high view of Scripture. Scripture is natsal. It is sent down, and it includes the Torah, which is given to Moses, and the Injil, the gospel, which is given to Jesus. And so you have an affirmation that at least as it was given, these books were revelations from God. They're revelations given from God. Now, what does the Quran say about the Bible? Well, we need to understand that the author of the Quran had a generally high view of the Torah and the Injil. However, there is little evidence the author of the Quran had any first or even secondhand knowledge of the actual content of Ayah the Torah and the Injil. And I've always mentioned to my Muslim friends, it strikes me as strange that if the chain is Torah, Injil, and Quran, final word from God, that while the gospel, the New Testament, has intimate knowledge of the Old Testament and quotes from it and, and its authors know it very, very well, the author of the Quran has no knowledge of the content and meaning of the preceding scriptures. The only direct quotation, there's a possibly an allusion to a psalm, but the only direct quotation is the lex talionis, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's very, very plain that the author of the Quran had, no, had never heard of Colossians or Philippians or had any idea about what was contained in these books. And there's no interaction with any of that, unlike what you have in the book of Hebrews with deep interaction with the scriptures of the Old Covenant. You simply do not have that in any way uh, in the Quran itself. Uh, then we read, there we go. Indeed, we sent down the Torah in which was guidance and light. Now, listen to this chain. Listen, I'm gonna, there's gonna be a couple of screens here. And listen to the chain that is presented here in Surah 5. This is very important for you to understand. Indeed, we sent down the Torah in which was guidance and light. Those are, that's, that's language of inspiration there, by the way. The prophets who submitted to Allah judged by it for the Jews, as did the rabbis and the scholars, by that which they were entrusted of the scripture of Allah, and they were witnesses thereto. And whoever does not judge by what Allah has revealed, then it is those who are the wrongdoers. Now notice, it seems that the text is saying that the Torah still exists, and that people can judge by what is found in that particular scripture. 
And we sent following in their footsteps, Jesus, the son of Mary, confirming that which came before him in the Torah. Notice the role of Jesus. He confirms that which came before him in the Torah. And we gave him the gospel in which was guidance and light. Notice the same two terms used in the Torah. And confirming that which preceded it of the Torah as guidance and instruction for the righteous. Now notice this one. I'm even going to go back to this one so we can see it. And let the people of the gospel judge by what Allah has revealed therein. And whoever does not judge by what Allah has revealed, then is those who are the defiantly disobedient. So we have Moses receives the Torah, Jesus receives the gospel and confirms what came before it. Now watch the rest of the chain that is presented here in Surah 5. And we revealed to you, O Muhammad, the book in truth, confirming that which preceded it of the scripture. And this translation says, and as a criterion over it. Um, interesting translation. So judge between them by what Allah has revealed and do not follow their inclinations away from what has come to you of the truth. This is Surah 5, 44 through 48. Now, what do we see? We see a chain here. Moses, Torah, Jesus, Injil, Muhammad, Quran. It is a chain. And yet, what we saw in verse 47, I want you to look at it once, once more. And let the people of the gospel judge by what Allah has revealed therein. Now, I'm not an expert on Arabic. I've studied enough of it to be able to ask good questions. But those who do know the language, my tutor and so on and so forth, has uh, confirmed to me that when it says therein, the term fihi there only has one possible antecedent, and that is the gospel. For the only, the only way for these words to have any meaning is if in the days of Muhammad, the people to whom this was addressed, the people of the gospel, still possessed the gospel. Now, why is that important? Well, because we have manuscripts that long predate the time of Muhammad. And so if there's been major corruption, when did it take place? Did the author of the Quran believe that major corruption had taken place? That is one of the questions. Now, very briefly, I hope you understand three major barriers you need to understand to the gospel presentation when we are reaching out to Muslims, wherever they might be. The first is the concept of shirk. The central affirmation of Islamic theology is tawheed. Tawheed is the oneness of Allah. The abrogation of tawheed is shirk. It is the one unforgivable sin. Allah can forgive any other sin. If you die with any other sin, you can still be forgiven. But if you commit shirk, if you die as a mushrik, you cannot be forgiven of that sin. And of course, to the Muslim, they believe that we are calling them to commit shirk in the worship of Jesus Christ. And so they see that as a tremendous uh, barrier uh, to their belief. The second is the denial of the cross. In Surah 4, 157, uh, the Quran tells us that Jesus Christ was not crucified, that he did not die. It was only made, made to appear that he did. And so if you don't have the crucifixion, then you don't have the resurrection, you don't have atonement, you don't have the gospel. That, of course, is a huge barrier. And then thirdly, and it comes up in almost every single debate that I do, the corruption of the Bible. The vast majority of Muslims today believe that the Bible has been corrupted. It has not been transmitted to us in an accurate fashion. 
In fact, the terminology that you might want to be familiar with is tarif al-mana and tarif al-nas. Tarif al-mana would be an interpretational corruption of the scriptures, while tarif al-nas would be the actual changing of the words of scripture. Now, historically, we can trace two lines in the historical thinking and development of Muslim theology. There were always those who believed that all that was being said was that the Christians and the Jews were misinterpreting their scriptures, especially in light of the fact that the Quran affirms that they had been sent down by God. If they could be corrupted, then couldn't the Quran be corrupted since it was sent down by God as well? But then there were others who believed in Tarif al-Nas, the actual corruption of the wording of the text of Scripture. Now, how has it come to today where 99.9% of the Muslims you're going to be talking to are going to believe in Tarif al-Nas, that the Bible itself has been corrupted? Well, here's evidence that uh, publishing is an important thing. It comes down to a single book. A single book that was published, there we go, in 1864, uh, Ramatullah Karanawi wrote a book called Itzar Ulhaq, Itzar Ulhaq, the demonstration of or vindication of the truth. And what he saw was Christian missionaries were being successful in India amongst the Muslims. And so what he did is he went to our liberals and some not so liberal sources, but he went to commentaries especially. And he created what really is in some senses an encyclopedic index of every kind of argument you could ever muster against the Bible. It's about 800 some odd pages long. Uh, in the paper edition, uh, it's in uh, four, uh, well, my, my edition's in three volumes, four parts, three volumes. Um, it is still very, very uh, popular today. As I said, it is, it is really a, uh, there we go, encyclopedic collection of alleged contradictions in the Bible. Uh, there's entire sections on theological conundrums uh, and a lot of discussion of textual variation. And so what they did is they went to a lot of the commentaries that were available in that day and they said, well, you know, here uh, we look at this particular text and, and uh, they're admitting that there's a textual variation here. And you read this text, it contradicts this text over here. Page after page after page, drumbeat after drumbeat after drumbeat of what you would find on atheist websites and things like that today. Here it is produced within the context of helping Muslims to believe that the Bible has been corrupted and therefore Christians have no basis upon which to point out any kind of theological errors in the Quran, in problems with the Hadith, whatever else it might be. They're saying uh, our problems are nothing in comparison to what Christians have today. Now, it's our ulhaq was originally published in Arabic, then it was published in Urdu. Um, and it has had a huge impact upon da'wah. Da'wah, the Muslims have one thing right. They recognize that to call to Islam requires you to defend Islamic claims. And so they recognize that apologetics and evangelism go hand in hand. And so da'wah for them uh, includes both. And pretty much all Islamic da'wah today has been deeply influenced by this particular book, even if the individual has never read the book or even heard of it. And one of the main reasons is this was the book that sent 
the most popular Islamic speaker of the past hundred years on the path to becoming a, a, a person practicing Dawah. His name was Ahmed Didat. And even to this day, even though he died, um, uh, I think it was 2005, 2006, somewhere around in there, um, he is still probably the most listened to Islamic speaker in the world. There are a number of people who imitate his style. I debated one of his disciples in Durban, South Africa in 2014. We're going to do that again, Lord willing, uh, in this year, probably in October. Um, one of the most popular speakers today who's still living, Zakir Naik, uh, imitates m- many of, of Ahmed Didat's statements. And I have a, a clip of Ahmed Didat speaking here. Listen to what Ahmed Didat says as uh, he discusses uh, Al-Haq, the, the book that we're talking about here. And brother, people naturally become inquisitive. They would like to know how does it come about that a Muslim is expounding biblical prophecies, is dealing with Islamic subjects from the Christian point of view, that, might, that he might be able to appeal to the Christians. Where did he get this knowledge from? I did make some indication in the beginning of my lecture tour that I was working in a country shop, and across the shop from where I was, there was a Christian mission, Adam's Mission Station where missionaries were being trained. And these missionaries were coming into the shop where I was working, selling sugar and salt, handkerchief, flour. This was my work. And me and my other, there were other young uh, ex-students just left school. We were being hammered by the Christians. They came along, whatever they studied, they practiced it on us. So you know, Islam was spread at the point of the sword. In other words, Muhammad forced his religion down people's throat by threatening them of chopping of their heads. He says, Muhammad copied his book, the Quran from the Jews and the Christians. You know, he had so many wives and on and on. We were at the receiving end of a Christian assault, attack. And either I felt you should leave the job and run away, Defend yourself. But you can't defend yourself if you have no knowledge. And I was in desperation. And Allah is Musabibul Asbab. He is the creator of opportunities. I was restless one Sunday morning. Didn't know what to do. I want some reading material. There was no books to read. But I was hungry to read. So I go into my boss's warehouse, rummaging through a pile of newspapers, looking for something pleasant to read, like the Farmer's Weekly, and things of that nature. And in that pile of newspapers, I come across a worm-eaten book full of mildew. And the name of that book was Izharul Haq, which means the truth revealed. At the end of this booklet, if you have received it, is the Bible God's word. There is an epilogue that how these things happen. And I mention here that this book is Harul Haq, changed my life, my, all my experiences, you know, it has made me actually, that one book made me to come here now, and you coming to listen to me because of that one book. What one book can do? So in that book, it was written by an Arab, and this Arab gentleman was trying to arm the Indian Muslims 
who were at that time at the receiving end of a Christian assault. So there you have Ahmed Didat recognizing and admitting that Itzar al-Haq was really what began his, uh, his work. And all the Muslim apologists today have been deeply influenced uh, by, by DDOT, even the ones who are a little bit more scholarly. The next clip I'm going to play is from the first debate that I did with a Muslim, which was at Biola University in 2006. And this was with uh, now Dr. Shabir Ali. Listen to our dialogue and listen to the underlying presuppositions and approach that he has toward the text of scripture. Now, the average Muslim you're, not gonna be, you're, you're talking with is not gonna be like Shabir Ali, but this gives you an idea of the, the scholarly influence that this perspective has had here from uh, Shabir Ali. If the clicker will click. There we go. Is there any New Testament book uh, that Mark, for example, which you've referred to many times, Mark, clearly identifies Jesus as the son of God, puts words in his mouth that you would never be able to accept as a Muslim. Isn't that correct? Well, it is clear that even Mark uh, must have um, uh, suffered from a similar sort of phenomenon that we uh, described in the case of Matthew. And John Bowden has made specifically that point in his book, Jesus, The Unanswered Questions. If we look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, which in many Bibles begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, it is noted in the NIV, for example, that the title, the son of God, in this particular verse, uh, is not found in some of the most ancient and reliable manuscripts. So I'm not saying that the gospel according to Mark does not present Jesus as the son of God, but we have to be aware of scribal changes that have affected the gospel according to Mark in places as well. And uh, in fact, we are working with the gospel according to Mark only as it has come down to us, knowing the history of scribal changes, uh, we would not be out of our grounds to wonder if in fact we do really have the original Mark and gospel. So there you have, uh, now how many of you just off the top of your head knew there was a textual variant of Mark 1.1? But Shabir Ali did. And so you can see that kind of approach, especially toward the text of uh, the New Testament itself. Uh, that was continued in a debate that I did at uh, Northwest University in Pachasunum, South Africa last year uh, with another one of the leading Islamic apologists, Yusuf Ismail. And notice uh, the kind of approach that he takes uh, to attempting to undercut the authority of Scripture. Kurt and Barbara Allen, and he quoted them, they are authoritative. This is what they say. He says, they say, until the beginning of the 4th century, the text of the New Testament developed freely. Even for later scribes, parallel passages of the Gospels were so familiar that they would adapt the text of one Gospel to that of another. They also felt themselves free to make corrections in the text, improving it by their own standard of correctness, whether grammatically, stylistically, as I showed, or more substantively. Why would you want to make stylistic improvements to the Word of God? Do you know more than God Himself? So you want to now choose that you can edit and change and adapt and amend and make the improvements accordingly. And what they importantly say further is that in contrast to the Hebrew Old Testament and other Oriental traditions such as the Quran, where an almost letter-perfect transcription was the rule. Almost letter-perfect transcription was a particular rule. So there you have a discussion of the, uh, you know, if you're familiar with textual criticism, uh, the style of transmission in certain manuscripts versus other manuscripts uh, being used by an Islamic apologist to say, see, there has been corruption. 
uh, this next one very quickly. I'm just trying to give you some idea of, of the way that this is utilized by modern Islamic apologists. Uh, this next uh, situation was one where I had just explained to the audience that having a free transmission of the text, that is having the, the transmission of the text go out to a wide number of people rather than having a controlled transmission such as you have in the Quran where you have basically a governmental uh, revision and control of the text. The free transmission is much better. Here in a debate with Adnan Rashid in London, uh, you can see that it's very difficult for the average Muslim to understand that having thousands of manuscripts is better than having just a few that are controlled. This is, this is difficult for them to understand, and you'll see that in Adnan's comments right here. Free transmitted text equals more confidence. That was one of the biggest blunders I've heard in my life. I don't understand how that can be true. How can be free transmission of a text which was written by someone in the past uh, and copied by hundreds and thousands of people be authentically, um, can be attributed to the original authors. This does not make sense to me at all. So if thousands of people are copying a document which was written in the first century by someone, and all of these thousands of people are adding their own view on the verses, or their own words, or their own expressions, or their own uh, glosses on the text, how do we know what was originally written by those people who wrote in the first century? Finally, just a few weeks ago, there was a debate. Uh, this is the only one that I wasn't involved in, but uh, the gentleman that you'll see here, Zakir Hussein, is the gentleman that I debated on whether Muhammad is found in Scripture in the East London Mosque that I mentioned to you earlier. Listen to the sort of uh, rapid-fire presentation of alleged errors in Scripture that sort of marks uh, the modern Islamic approach on this subject. Embarrassed by the statement of Jesus when he denied that he was ultimately good as God is, thus he cannot be God. What about Mark chapter 5, verse 30? As Jesus was walking, a woman comes behind him who's been bleeding for 12 years, and she touches Jesus, and she's healed. So Jesus turns around because he noticed power had left him, and he starts asking his disciples, who touched me? Who touched me? And they said to him, we don't know who touched you. There's a whole crowd around you. So Jesus is looking around trying to figure out who touched him, and then the woman tells him it was me who touched you. Now, the same story in Matthew chapter 9 Rather than looking around all confused and ignorant, uh, where, where is, uh, who touched me? Instead, Jesus turns around straight away, looks at the woman and says, take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. So what did Matthew do once again? He improved the so-called word of God, the gospel of Matthew, by changing the image of Jesus. So if any Christian tries to explain away the text in Mark, they should first explain why Matthew was embarrassed by it and he changed it. So this is a problem when Christians think they can just quote from the New Testament to try to prove who Jesus is, when it's clear that the New Testament writers were willing to change the biography of Jesus in order to make it conform to their own beliefs. So rather than modify their beliefs to conform to Scripture, instead they will modify Scripture to conform to their beliefs. Well, now, how do you respond to that? Now, many of us who, who study... Uh, for example, synoptic parallels and the synoptic issues and things like that. We know all about uh, the, the raising of Jairus' daughter and how uh, Matthew gives a much shorter version of it than Mark gives and so on and so forth. But in the hands of the Islamic apologists, this all becomes evidence of the corruption of the original uh, writings of the scriptures themselves. So textual variations, synoptic parallels, 
uh, it's all brought to bear now in the, uh, in, the, in the current context, so much so that, for example, here, uh, a new book by Sammy Amerdi has just come out, Hunting for the Word of God, which is just an, an updated, new, modern version of It's Our Hawk. Uh, the same arguments being presented, and this is the kind of material that we're going to be dealing with when we're dealing with uh, Islamic apologetics today. So, what do Muslims need in light of this? I have very little time, so I'll have to be very quick. All Christians, no matter their location or their calling, should be prepared to give an accurate witness to Muslim people when the opportunity arises. The last two times I've taken a taxi ride, guess what? Those were interesting taxi rides uh, because my, my driver was a Muslim. And uh, uh, I, I almost gave him wrong directions just so we could go drive around a little bit, uh, a little bit longer. But... but uh, we had a wonderful opportunity to be able to, to speak. I am very, very concerned that uh, if we fear Muslims, if we fear each Muslim we encounter, if we take most of our understanding of Islam from Fox News, um, or even worse, from MSNBC, um, that we will not extend our hearts in true compassion and witness to these individuals. If we do not make proper distinctions and recognize that uh, the vast majority of Muslims do not want to kill me. Uh, if we don't recognize that, then we will in fear remain in silence. We must pray for this spirit-given compassion to be able to witness to these individuals when we have opportunity. No matter how regularly or often Muslims misrepresent our faith, we cannot return the favor as servants of Jesus Christ. We must strive for accuracy and truthfulness in our depictions of Islam, and this greatly concerns me today because I must report to you that I've met many evangelicals who, because of what they see on television, figure it just doesn't matter if we accurately represent these people because of what they've done. And you do not want to be painted with those broad brush strokes. You do not want to be associated with people who do things in the name of Christianity that are not appropriate. And we should not do the same thing if we are going to be consistent and we must be consistent. So what does the Muslim world need? Let's consider two major categories, missions and in-country churches and populations. Missionaries to Islamic lands must have an accurate knowledge of both the theology and practice of the Islamic populations to which they will minister. So in other words, if you're going to a Sunni land, you know, need to know what Sunnis believe. And if you're going to be dealing with the Shiites, you need to know the difference between Sunni and Shiite. If you're going to be talking to some Ahmadis, you need to know the differences there. You need to recognize that there are different kinds of Muslims. And of course, the Sunni would not believe the Ahmadi are even Muslims. They sort of view them as we view Jehovah's Witnesses. But the point is that there needs to be a real understanding, an accurate understanding of exactly what is believed and why it is believed. But in light of the content of Islamic da'wah and due to the internet, missionaries must be trained in areas they have not needed training in before. Specifically, they need to be able to explain, and you need to know it well enough yourself to be able to simplify it enough for others and still be accurate in what you're saying. They need to understand the textual history of the Bible. I know a lot of pastors who are well aware of the fact that there are those tiny little footnotes at the bottom of the page, and they live in fear that someone might come up and ask them, well, why does it say that? Now, I know that's not the case for master's seminary grads, and I am thankful for that. Um, uh, but there are many people for whom that is a great fear. 
And so there needs to be training in the textual history of the Bible. We need to be aware of how it is that God has preserved the text and transmitted it to us and not hide from that, but actually use it offensively to demonstrate the supremacy and the superiority of the methodology God used to give us our Bible in comparison to the way that the Quran has been passed down through time. That we need to understand about textual variation, why it existed, why there are differences between the King James and the New King James and the NESB and the ESV and the underlying Greek texts, and so on and so forth. We also need to know about canonization because they do. They know about the Apocrypha, and uh, they're willing to throw that out and say, well, you know, why don't you have these books in your Bible? And that is a great area of, of a lot of discomfort for a lot of modern Christians. Uh, canonization is a tough issue for many people. We need to, to, to be aware of alleged contradictions and know how to harmonize these things, not in a surface-level manner but in a way that demonstrates we have thought deeply about these things. And we need to be able to explain why there are differences in translations, uh, why you're going to have not just the underlying Greek text variation, but why there are differences in translations, why some translations are more formal than others, etc., etc., etc. Doctrinally, they must be prepared to provide clear, in-depth defenses and explanations of the Trinity, the divine sonship of Jesus, the incarnation, the cross, and the atonement. These cannot be places where we stumble. These cannot be places where by our hesitancy we communicate that we're really not sure about these things when at the same time we're telling these people their life and death issues. This must flow off of our tongues because we know it so well and we want to communicate it because it is the very issue of the gospel in dealing with the Muslim people. In-country, native churches would profit from a number of things. Websites providing training in biblical reliability, translation, and transmission. Uh, I, I go down to South Africa, and it's amazing to me. I see the people standing on the street corner selling things. And when they're not selling things, they're whipping out their cell phone and they're reading the web. It's all over. And that means we should be using it. Have websites that have so much of this type of information uh, available to people. Easily distributable books, pamphlets, online videos presenting Christian beliefs in the language of Islam. In other words, recognizing what terminology they, they use and utilizing that terminology to explain what we believe in a way that would be understandable to them and would communicate to them. In-country native language training in responding to Islamic da'wah in responding to the type of argumentation that they are utilizing in their, well, the debates we just saw and in their, in their materials. Translation into native languages of key solid works of theology and biblical studies, such as Michael Kruger's works on canon issues, works on inerrancy and inspiration. If you haven't seen Dr. Michael Kruger's works on, on canonization, I cannot more highly recommend them to you. Unfortunately, I doubt they're ever going to be translated unless so, someone talks them into, someone talks the publishers into doing it because they're very scholarly, but they need to be translated and made available uh, to people outside of the English language context. Introductory works on textual transmission, criticism need to be made available. Apologetic works on the Trinity and related subjects. Uh, again, not just in Arabic, but in the native languages. And I know this is a, it's a tremendous amount of work, but that is what is going to allow us to really make an impact upon the Muslim world. And finally, works on the historicity of the resurrection, the meaning and intention of the atonement. And I'm not just talking 
uh, about Puritan works. That, that might be pretty hard to translate. Some of us have trouble uh, reading that in English, and that was the original language. But, um, but uh, certainly taking those works and communicating the same in-depth material. We need, a, we need a modern interpreter of John Owen that has a passion for Muslims. Let's put it that way, that we can put that material out. And sound works presenting consistent theology and toto, these are what the native churches desire and what they need to be able to communicate to the Muslim people. And so in finality, and I know I've gone, had to go very, very, work, very, very quickly, a final word on the lordship of Jesus in Islamic evangelism. I will never forget one evening I was debating Adnan Rashid at a Baptist church that was about uh, seven stops on the tube from where one of the 7-7 seven, seven bombings had taken place. That was England's version of 9-11, if you recall that. And my opponent was very, very focused and very, very uh, aggressive in the comments that he was making. And when I stood up, I'll, be, I'll admit, the, the, the audience had auto-divided um, itself. The Christians were over here and the Muslims were over there. It's not like we made them do that. It just sort of happened as they came in. And I pretty much ignored the Christians. And I looked at the Muslims, which were, you, you all are the Muslims this evening. And I looked at the Muslims and I presented to them a full-orbed biblical presentation of Jesus. And what I mean by that is I said, you cannot believe that Jesus was a mere Razul. The Bible teaches that he is the creator of all things. That means every breath you take Every beat of your heart comes from his hand. You cannot be neutral about him. He calls you to bow the knee before him as Lord. Now, what I learned that evening is that the Muslims don't need any more pictures of Jesus carrying little lambs in his arms. What they will hear and what they will respect is a biblical presentation. And in case we've all forgotten it, the Jesus of the Bible is described as ruling the nations with a rod of iron. He is the Lord of all. And they respect that. They sat and they listened and they heard. And when I said, you cannot be neutral. They heard about a Jesus, and when they hear about the Jesus who is Lord of all and then see the great condescension that was his, the love that was his in his self-giving, then they see really a Jesus that they're never going to hear of from their own imams and their own scriptures. And what they need to hear then is to hear about a Jesus who is all-powerful, who has given us his word and he has safeguarded that word. What does the Muslim world need when it comes to the subject of inerrancy? It needs people who are not ashamed of that word. You and I both know that in a lot of theological education today, to even say you believe in inerrancy is to immediately preclude any further advancement in that particular portion of the academy. We all know it. At least we should know that's the case. There are many people who will sign documents and say, I believe in it, but they're embarrassed about it. And you know what? The Muslims can tell if you're embarrassed about inerrancy. They will respect someone who believes the Bible is really God's word and will go to the mat in defense of it. But unfortunately, very often what they're getting, what they're seeing in the Christian world is anything but that. The Christian world needs people who believe that the Bible truly is the word of God, will defend it as such, will explain it as such with passion in their heart and love for the Muslim people. I hope you will join with me in praying 
that God will raise up even from this people. Young men who will say, I will go. I will be one of those that will speak to these people. There are more than a billion of them on this planet. And they need to hear from those of us who truly believe the message of the scriptures. Thank you very much. Thank you, James. James, thank you so much. We are well served by that presentation. If you are not familiar with Alpha and Omega Ministries, you've just been introduced to it in the last hour. And I would encourage you to follow James's ministry, take advantage of the resources that are available to you uh, through his website, his podcast, and so forth.